my goal is really to share with you my experiences uh, in teaching Invisalign for, wow, since I, I joined in December of 1998 as a resident. I was still, I know, wow, right? I got a good plastic surgeon. Um, and uh, the whole time I was practicing part-time uh, in San Francisco, this is my office right here. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun working with Invisalign. And uh, through the process, I've, I've seen a lot of patients uh, through consultations, done a lot of consultations with other doctors. And uh, my hope is to teach you kind of what I'm looking for when I see a patient at the initial consultation so that you could pick, um, pick up on the, the subtle things that make a big difference as far as your evaluations go, okay? So um, what makes an uh, expert an expert and a novice a novice? And I think what an expert does is that the expert recognizes what they have. They see the potential right off the bat. And then they are able to see where they want to go and how they want to get there. The expert also is able to deliver, right? So it's, it's in any field, you know, whether you're a chef or a golfer or fly fishing, interior decorator playing poker, those who know what they're doing, they know what they've got. They know what they're working with. And my goal is to, to start you there. You'll learn about all the other stuff here at the summit, but really hone your uh, exam skills. You know, what are you doing during that 10-minute, 15-minute introduction to the patient who's interested in Invisalign? Now, you do want to get a handout because um, there's a little worksheet that we're going to go through together. So if you don't have a handout, maybe raise your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll get one for you. Or they're, they're in the back. There's a couple in the front as well. Um, so the idea here is that... How are we doing with the microphone here? We're doing all right? Okay. The idea here is that within two minutes, in dialoguing with... In, we're talking to your patients during that exam and looking at their smile and hearing what they're saying about what they're interested in having corrected, you should be able to have a pretty solid understanding of what they've got and where you want to go without even having to take any records. Crazy, huh? But if you are unable to do that, that should be sort of a, a gut check for you that this case is going to require more information. Not that you can't treat it, but just as far as setting expectations for patients, you want to be careful not to overpromise at that time point because you might find yourself having then to backtrack a little bit later on after you take the records and then suddenly telling the patient, oh yeah, well, it's a harder case. We might actually have to run rubber bands now or we have to put a bunch of attachments everywhere or do IPR and all those things that come after the fact feel to the patient more like an excuse. And so the more you can cram into that first two-minute assessment, get as much as you can out of that experience, communicate that to the patient, the more confident you will be and the more the patient will feel that as well. All right, so that's the exercise we're going to go through today. Um, you know, you have certainly three opportunities to get the diagnosis right. The first time is obviously at the exam, and then you can always collect more records, get the records and sit down and, and, and study that, and then you can also take a scan or an impression for ClinCheck and then do another diagnosis there. But every time you go through that, it's more time, it's more energy, and it's more cost to you. And so the more you can push everything upstream and get a really solid understanding up front, the better off you will be. Okay. So here's what we're going to focus on. Um, in fact, all the stuff, all the comments are really in the handout. So um, there's a lot, and we're not going to cover it all. We're not, this, this originally was designed to be a, like a one-day course. You know, I'd originally proposed that, hey, we're going to do a comprehensive evaluation from records to exam to ClinCheck, and then they said, um, you'll have to do that next year. We're going to do this in 45 minutes. So you get the front end of it, and uh, hopefully it'll be enough to get you started. Okay, so this is what we're going to focus on today is really... Um, the initial patient presentation, smile assessment, and the analysis from a very cursory exam. And if you can master that, the rest of it will fall into, into place quite nicely. Okay. Um, certainly you can get more information, it's more work, it's more effort, but we're not going to be able to cover this. However, in your handout, I do have the items that you can look through if, uh, if and when you get to that stage, here are the additional pointers that you want to follow. And the same thing for uh, ClinCheck review, I've outlined that in the handout as well, so if you want to take a look at that, and if you have any questions, I suppose you could always email me, I'll leave you my email, it's in the handout too, my email address is in the handout as well. Okay, so that's the, the kind of premise. Now, there's a whole bunch of benefits that you will get at the examination, so do not undersell or underestimate the value of the exam. The downside, though, of the exam is that, well, you have limited time, because at the end of the day, you're not really collecting a whole lot of money for the exam, okay? 
So you want to be very intentional about how you engage the patient during your 5, 10, 15 minutes that you have during the exam. The other downside is you don't have a whole lot of work to, to work with. This is what you're seeing in the patient during the exam. I don't, I don't think most of you are busting out the retractors and the camera and, and you know, uh, looking really far back. You, you basically, during the chat, probably get these views. And so you've got to be really perceptive and really quick in looking specifically for things that are going to tell you a lot. And that's where we're going to focus on. The benefits of the exam are that you get things that a study model will not tell you. Namely, um, what's their motivation and why do they want to do this? And the attitude that they express to you as they're telling you this. A study model won't tell you that the reason they want to do Invisalign is because they're unhappy with life and they're hoping this will transform their outlook in life. Right? Those are things that you'll pick up on and go, hmm, I can fix your teeth. I'm not sure I can fix your outlook and warn you about potential unrealistic expectations. Right? Um, the other thing is you can start engaging the patient in dialogue. So if you're quick and precise with your exams, you can start engaging in the potential of attachments and IPR and extended lengths of treatment. You can say, you know what, based on what I see here, we can certainly treat your, your, your smile, and, but the problem is it's a more complicated case and it's probably going to be more in the 18 to 24 month range versus the 6 to 12 month range. And so right off the bat, you can start talking about likelihood of success. If you identify these pitfalls or these trickier aspects, you can start shaping their expectations that, you know what, we can go for that. I'm not sure we'll be able to get it with high confidence, but this is some area that we can do well and some areas that we might not be able to achieve optimal for that. The other thing is we can start dialoguing about their, their experience throughout treatment. I talk about IPR and attachments, but we can also talk about restorations. What, what is your plan from an Invisalign combined with veneers and implants and, and, and kind of start to shape what it would take to get them to feel like their treatment was worthwhile, right? Again, the more you do up front, the better. And then finally, how much is this going to cost me and how, much is it, how, much, how long will I have to wear these things? If you could get that right, then it's not a surprise when you come back to them and say, oh yeah, I was wrong the first time. It's not six months, it's 18. So get it right up front, build your confidence and build the patient's confidence in you, especially as they start to talk to their friends about you know, how great their dentist is. Right? Those are the things that if they go to another doctor and the doctor doesn't get it right, they'll get a second opinion and hopefully you're the one that they go to and they, they feel like they can trust their smile with you, especially with all this marketing going on. A lot of you, I think, are using Invisalign as a great opportunity to get new patients into the office. So you don't even know who these people are anyway. So you don't have a whole lot of time that you want to spend up front dialoguing with them that they might not do Invisalign. So the key is to be very efficient and be very specific about what you're looking for. So we're going to dig in now to what it is you're looking for. Now, in your handout are the three general categories uh, that you want to focus on. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the demographics. I've listed in the handout some of the considerations that you may want to uh, pay attention to. We're going to focus really on what you can see in their smile and having them tilt their head up a little bit and look at the crowding and the spacing from the anterior view. So, you want to be systematic in how you go about this. Not just with your exams, but then you want to take this idea and transfer it to your records exam as well. So I like to look at the view from the anterior. I have them turn to the right, uh, turn to the left, I mean, and look at the right view, and then look at the left side, and then I just have them tilt their chin up a little bit, look at the uppers, and look at the lowers. And every time I have them do this, I'm picking up on certain clues. And then when you go and you do records, let's say it is a harder case, it takes you longer than two minutes to figure this out, then you go and say, you know what, this is a little bit more tricky, I think I need more information, can we have uh, some pictures taken, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to evaluate it from the same perspective, very systematically, and then when we do the models, we'll do the same thing as well, front, right, left, upper, lower, and then even when we get the ClinChecks back, we're going to have the same process, okay? So you're going to want to develop that pattern. It becomes a habit so that everything becomes second nature, so that it's not like every case is a new case. If you have a, a habit, what's nice is then you'll have a system and that makes you very, much more efficient. Okay, so let's start with... Um, some of the key areas. Um, I've broken down everything in the handout as to what are the key components. This is a lot of information. My, my goal is not for us to cover everything. But from the front view, you can see these things. From the right and left view, you can see these things. And from the upper and lower views, you can see these things. All right. Now, 
For this lecture, we will focus on what I call the core. Right? These are the things that put you in the ballpark. It might not give you everything that you need, but it'll give you a pretty high confidence uh, as far as what you can say to them in terms of timing, in terms of complexity. So let's now start with the, the fundamentals. Right? What, do I, what am I looking at? What am I looking for and what do I call it? At the fundamental core of orthodontics is the bite relationship because I think that can, a, a strong bite relationship or a good bite relationship will be a, like a 12 to 16 month treatment. But on either side of that, if it's class two or class three, easily could jump to 18, 24, 36 months, right? And so you want to get that right. Unfortunately, the, the classic way of looking at the bite relationship is the molar. And unless you do full records, you're not going to be able to, to, to ascertain that accurately. So I want to use a proxy for the molar, and I like to use the cuspids. Okay? So what you want to look for, just by having them tilt their chin, key in on the position of the lower tip of the cuspid, and you want to see it point up to the embrasure between the cuspid and the lateral incisor. Look for that. So that's point number one. Okay? If your cuspid is behind that line, then you're looking at a class two. Up until the point where the lines meet up, that's what I call the border between mild and severe. This right here is moderate to me. It's an end on class two. In front of that is mild, and then behind that is severe. Okay? The farther back you go, the more tricky the case will be, especially in adults. What are you going to do? Are you going to grow the mandible? No, chances are you're not. All right? On the opposite side of the line, if your cuspid tip is in front of that line, you're looking at class threes. Okay? And the key with class threes is you want to make sure that the age of the patient is appropriate for the skeletal condition of the patient, meaning you want to make sure they're done growing. So anyone who's less than 21 years old, if they're a class three in my office, if they're less than 21, I'll tell them to wait. Females, I suppose, because they uh, mature a little bit early, you can probably go down to 19, I suppose. But there's always a risk of latent growth spurt, and you don't want to end up having to retreat them again uh, just because they continue to grow. Okay? So. Another trick is because since when you're looking at the patient, you're kind of only able to see this. And you're not really looking at this view. You're looking at more from the anterior view. And so the second trick I want to teach you is what I call the look back. You look at the cuspid relationship, and in this case, okay, the lower tip is engaged between the lateral and the cuspid, but I'm going to confirm it by doing a look back. And a look back basically shifts the view to the bicuspids to confirm that the bicuspids are also well interdigitated as the cuspids. In fact, I think the bicuspids are a better metric of class one than the cuspids because sometimes you've got wear, tips are kind of worn down and it gives you a false read. Look at this patient. If you were sitting over here to the right of it, you might be thinking, oh yeah, that's a class one. The lower is in front and it's very easy to get fooled by that. So you, you focus on that and you think, oh, that's a class one. But you do a look back, go one tooth back, and now you go, huh, the teeth are sitting one on top of the other. I think that's a class two. Okay. Same thing for a class three. You know, especially with crossbites. This patient has a crossbite, lateral is uh, you know, lingual uh, of, the, of the lowers. And so it's very hard to get a read. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, the, the cusp tip kind of looks like it's in between there. So you're thinking, yeah, maybe that is class one. You do a look back, and sure enough, the lower bicuspid is, in, in, is forward of where it ought to be. So that tells me, no, I think it's more of a class three. Okay. So these are the subtle things you want to pay attention to uh, as you're assessing. And I like to do a right side assessment and a left side assessment. I keep them separate. Now the second trick, or the third trick, is from the front view because you're very restricted into what you can see uh, during the exams. Right? So the thing I want to look at is midline discrepancies. And you're like, midline discrepancies? What does that have to do with the bite relationship? Turns out that a bad bite relationship will manifest itself inside of a midline discrepancy. It's kind of crazy, but it'll, it'll make a, sense, a lot of sense in just a second. So here we have a patient that has, let's say the uh, upper midline is centered. And you've got the lower midline slightly to the right. What that tells me, if it's shifted slightly to, to the right, is that I think there's a possibility that we have an asymmetry where this side is class two. That's what's causing the midline to shift. It's basically that jaw, if you will, is shorter on that side, causing it to swing over. Okay? And so what we want to do is just confirm it. 
So we say, hey, there's a cue here, a clue, that there might be a, a byte relationship that's off, and then you look at the cuspid to verify. And sure enough, you look at the right side, and oh, there's a class two here. Let's check the left side. And this side is also slightly class two, but it's better. So here we have an asymmetry. So a midline shift is going to be indicative of a possible asymmetry where the midline is going to shift towards the class two side. Okay. The other possibility is, well, maybe the other side, the contralateral side, is pushing it out. So maybe the opposite side is class three. So it could be either a class two towards the midline shift or a class three on the opposite side of the midline shift. Okay. So here we have another patient. Let's assume the upper is centered and we've got the lower over here. So one possibility would be that, hey, it's class two on this side, but the other possibility is class three on this side. We'll, so we'll take a look. You should be crafting and crystallizing what the possibilities are just by looking this way. And then you turn, have them turn, and then you verify. So here we have the cuspid relationship on this side, class three, indeed. It's forward of uh, the upper cuspid. And then on the left side, it looks pretty good. So here we have an example of midline shift due to an asymmetrical or unilateral class three. Everyone following so far? Okay, then we can have even subtle midline changes indicate that we have a bite problem as well. Look at this one here. We have a midline that's up on, on the upper and then off on the lower. So my instinct is going to say, you know what, there's a possibility that we have a class two on this side and a class three on that side. So that's what I'm queuing in on. I take a look and I can, in fact, see the lower cuspid is slightly forward. It's only half a millimeter. It's not huge. Class three on that side slightly, and then on the opposite side, notice that the, the, the cusp tip of the lower cuspid is distal slightly, and so slightly class two. And you go, oh, what's the big deal? Why are, we, why are we making such a big deal about, you know, quarter millimeter, half millimeter? Well, in this particular situation, if, if the goal is to center everything and, and make the smile look nice, let's say you want to do IPR in this case, it will act actually guide where you end up choosing to do your IPR. So in this case, I would, if I were to use IPR to get the cuspid relationship better, I'd be thinking about IPR distal to the cuspid on the upper and distal to the cuspid on the lower right. That will allow me to shift the midlines accordingly versus doing a bunch of asymmetrical IPR in the anterior and risking getting you know, different shapes uh, width of, of incisors. Right? So what you end up diagnosing will then play into what your treatment plan is as you go farther down the path. Okay, now, what's ideal? Where, what do we... What are we imagining in our heads? Um, that, that's an important thing to think about. And you know, one of the real pioneers in, in orthodontics uh, is Larry Andrews. He, he was the guy who invented the straight wire appliance. And, you know, and his genius was that the simplicity in which he went about doing it. He got a whole bunch of models that a bunch of doctors agreed were optimal in, in, in the way they were aligned, good arch form, good development. And then he measured what that ideal was, and that became the, the kind of the metric for ideal. Okay? And so, um, from the cuspid angulation, meaning the, the position of the cuspid from a mesial distal tip standpoint, what he measured on these cases was that the upper cuspid in an ideal position is 11 degrees forward and the lower cuspid is 5 degrees forward. Now, you don't have to write down the numbers. I mean, you can certainly look up, and this, all this stuff is online, okay? Uh, you can get all these prescription numbers. But the key to remember is that for cuspids, Good function and good aesthetics means that the cuspids are leaning forward. All right. So in your consultations, what you're paying attention to is these huge deviations, kind of things that are, it's supposed to be forward, but it's backwards. It's supposed to be upright, but it's retroclined. Those are things you cue on. So pay attention to the cuspids. Here's a good example of a cuspid uh, angulation problem. Here we have um, right cuspid. Well, the lower cusp tip is nestled right in between uh, the lateral and the cuspid. I th so we'll call that a class one for the purpose of discussion. But we look at the left side, and you'll notice that the lower cuspid, it looks good from a relationship, bite class one relationship standpoint, but it's tipped forward a lot. Okay? And so you should be able to imagine in your mind, well, if I were ideal in this situation and use up the space back here, I would end up in a class two situation. Okay? However, you should then say to yourself, oh, but wait, look, there is a space in the upper. So I should be able to distalize that upper cuspid into that space, and that would actually give me a class one situation. And then you should be able to say, oh, but look, there's a lateral incisor in crossbite, so I actually need to get as much space as possible between the lateral and the cuspid, and wow, this is perfect. I can use the space that I gain from distalizing this canine 
to make space for the lateral incisor. Okay. As you start to do this, you will start to extend and envision the next step, one step at a time, without even having to do a, a clinch egg. You can say, see in your mind where these things need to go so that as you're talking to the patient, you've pieced this whole process together in your mind to realize, yeah, this lateral incisor and crossbite looks really bad, but actually it's, um, uh, in terms of fit of teeth and in terms of diagnosis, it's not a problem. Okay? Now, if you were paying attention earlier to the, the look back, you can also just do a look back and see that all the bicuspids are well interdigitated. And so this is really a class one goal that you could uh, set up for, the, for this patient quite nicely. And their bite is inherently not problematic. On the opposite side, however, even though it started out class one, you will notice that this bicuspid is in a weird position. It's sitting really far back and there's a big space behind it. So, in my discussion with the patient for this one, I'm not so concerned about the left side. The one that I'm kind of scratching my head about is actually on the right side. How am I going to get this bicuspid forward without changing the ideal relationship that's already in place? You follow? Okay. What about aesthetics of the incisors and um, the overjet relationship? What is ideal? The thing to keep in mind for the anterior teeth is that the upper incisor is supposed to be flared slightly forward if you, if you use the, the facial surface uh, as, a, as a guide. Okay? The lower incisor, however, is supposed to be upright to slightly retroclined. Notice that it's not the root that we're talking about. The roots are flared forward. Okay? We're talking about the facial surface of the incisor. So you can't see the roots, really, when you're doing the consultation. But what you can see is the profile of the, of the incisor. So that's what you're looking for. Procline upper incisor slightly. Seven degrees is not a whole lot. It's more or less vertical, okay? But it's not retroclined. And the lower incisor is more or less upright. So look for those in, in your uh, evaluations uh, of your patients. So here we have a, a sort of a slightly buckle view, I suppose. And we can envision a line that runs through the, the middle, middle point of the, of the teeth, the spatial axis. And we can see that these teeth are not really upright. They're pretty flared forward. Okay? Not excessively, but there is a flare to them. So we would call these teeth proclined. And in your mind, you should be thinking, if these teeth are proclined, where should they belong ideally? They should belong tip back slightly. Okay? So then your next thing you should be thinking about is, well, if I'm tipping them back, do I have the room to bring them back? Okay? Well, what do I see? I see that these teeth are tipped forward. And I also see that there's a space just below the cuspid. So that's good. These are all things that I'm thinking to myself, if we can simply upright those teeth and use that space up, I can bring the teeth back. And the other thing that's probably even more critical is you need to have overjet for this to work. Okay? So you want to pay attention to whether or not there's enough space down below. This is where ethnicity of patients can come into play. So certain ethnicities, Asian patients, for example, we, in our dental anatomy, have large marginal ridges. And in these situations, you'll find that even if you uprighted these teeth, you still can't close that overjet because you're smacking the lower incisors up against the marginal ridges. So depending on the anatomy of the patient's teeth, you may also want to engage in a discussion about, you know what, as part of your treatment, we're also going to need to reshape some of those marginal ridges in order to get those teeth not as proclined. Let's say the chief concern of the patient is, my teeth are sticking too far forward. Well, you want to engage the discussion up front that we may have to reshape some of those lingual marginal ridges or these bumps that you have on the inside in order to retract those teeth and get to the ideal that you're, you're seeking. Okay. Here's a, an example also of lower incisors clearly getting in the way, right? Here we have a patient. Those are more than seven degrees flared forward. We want to bring them back. Fortunately, we have some space here. Um, we have a slightly, slightly class two bite relationship, but the good news is we have a space back here. So I can feel pretty confident I'm going to get a class one here. However, in order for me to correct these flared teeth, I need to retract them backwards, and they're going to run into those lower incisors. So deep bites in particular are not helpful when it comes to retracting flared dentition. So you always want to think, what do I have? And then really, the next step is, where am I going and how am I going to get there? In this situation, in order for me to get there, I need to get the lower incisors out of the way in order for me to retract the upper incisors. Now, 
Here we have a patient. If you draw the line, you'll see that we have retroclined incisors. Remember, it's supposed to be seven degrees. Even if you forgot seven, you can clearly see that this patient does not have even upright teeth. These are backwards. And so aesthetically, this is, this is not helpful. Um, some would argue functionally it's not helpful as well because you have uh, interference as you come, uh, if, as the lower teeth come forward. And so ideally, you want to reverse this and have these teeth come forward to the, to the plus seven degrees. So we draw our lines. And you can even see the laterals flared forward a little bit, and the cuspids are class two. This pattern here is very classic, um, what we call class two division two, but it's very mild. Okay? In a class two division two, you typically have class two relationship, and the upper centrals are retroclined, and the laterals are flared forward. But this is a, a very mild version of it. But if you could identify it up front, you will very easily be able to talk to the patient, yeah, aesthetically, we want to flare these forward, we want to bring this back in a little bit, and if we can improve your class two relationship, we'll try to do that. The opposite is overly procumbent or flared incisors. We draw our occlusal plane. Imagine the line. That's more than seven degrees. Teeth are very flared forward. Those teeth in the lower are supposed to be what? Upright, right? Slightly re retroclined, maybe one degree backwards. Well, these teeth are flared forward, so already I'm thinking everything is protruded. Okay, well, does it surprise us? Well, not really. I mean... Look at the tongue. It's, it's, it's sitting right there and pushing everything out. We have sort of a, a class three cuspid relationship, but we do a look back and we see that actually things are actually pretty, pretty well interdigitated. So what's happened is the tongue has pushed everything forward, including the cuspid. And so if we can talk about long-term retention with this patient, because everything's flared forward, we can retract everything. And so long as I think if the patient is good about long-term retention, we can upright those teeth back in and get these teeth not so flared forward just simply by retracting. Okay. All right, we got a little exercise here. So take your handouts, turn to the back page. Pop quiz. <laughs> exercise A. What I want you to do is if you have a pen, uh, just draw in your lines for the cuspids and draw in your lines for the central incisors. I'm going to give you a minute, eh, 30 seconds. We're, we're pushing for time here. So 30 seconds. I want you to identify what the cuspid relationship is and what we're looking for in the upper incisors. Oh, 30 seconds goes by fast. Five, four, three, two, one. Time is up. Okay. Here's the answers. Upper cuspid line should look something like this. Lower cuspid line should look like this. They're sitting one on top of the other, so it is a class. Excellent. And I would call this an end on class two, so it's moderate in my... Uh, view of severity. Your upper central incisor lines should look like this. These are fairly upright. We want a slight flare to them. So if we call this 90 degrees to the, the occlusal plane, we need about 7 degrees more. So your ClinCheck, if you think about it this way, should have the upper central incisors tipping forward. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. The other thing you can get during an exam is a good sense for whether there's a hidden skeletal problem underneath the dental complaint. It is unrealistic to expect that every patient that comes in for an examination is going to get a cephalometric tracing in order for you to do a skeletal diagnosis. However, you do want to be able to do a skeletal assessment. I mean, that is part of um, our diagnosis. Is there a, a bigger problem that we might miss? So here's the trick. Have the patient turn away from you into the profile view, and what you want to pay attention to is this line that connects the tip of the nose to the tip of the chin. Okay? So in all these patients, we draw this imaginary line. And these patients that are class two, skeletally, will have a retrognathic mandible. So the way you detect this is you have them protrude their lower jaw forward until 
the bottom teeth touch the top teeth. And pay attention to the aesthetics as they slide from centric occlusion, let's call it, to protruded. If they look better, like all these three do, you've chan chances are you've got a skeletal problem hiding beneath there, and the cause is a short mandible, right? Um, if you want to take a picture of them and just say, hey, look, I think we've got this problem, you can do that. But simply doing this will allow you to di diagnose and document into the chart that you've identified a potential retrognathic mandible. In fact, in this patient here, even, on, even this right patient here, even if they got surgery to fix this, you can see that the chin is still fairly set back. So ideally for this patient, not only would they get mandibular advancement, but they would also get a genioplasty on top of that. Right? So this simulation here is a quick 30-second test that you can use as part of that exam to identify things without having to uh, take a head film. Now for a class three, it's a little bit trickier. Class threes, um, you know, you got to identify, is the problem in the lower jaw or in the upper? So a lot of times in class threes, you can get a sense that they got the problem, but you're going to need more records to figure out where the problem's located. But a couple of tricks that you could look at, obviously the pointy chin, you know, the, the uh, the protrusive mandible is very common, and then obviously you confirm it by looking at the cuspid relationship. You can see that here we definitely have class 3 uh, bilaterally. But a lot of times you'll get something like this, too. Okay, you'll have a patient that doesn't really have a protruded chin, and in this case, I think the cause is really um, a deficient maxilla. Right? So th that's why it gets a little tricky. Is it the upper or is it the lower? Um, what I like to do with also class 3 is, is I like to retrude their, their lower jaw, and put it back as far as they can go back and still be comfortable to see how much of their class three is postured. Okay? Sometimes if they're edge to edge, that's great because that's a dental, dental problem that you, if you can just tip the teeth out of the way, then you can camouflage it quite nicely. So this patient here, when you push them back, they're, they're still um, edge to edge. Um, I'm not too excited about this one, but it, it's, it's, it's because of the deficient maxilla. Whereas if you look at this patient here, you push them back and, boy, the midlines are way off still, telling me that this cuspid is still really far off. And I look at the facial profile and we've got a big chin, we've got a, a, a you know, deficient maxilla. And so this patient here on the bottom has probably got both problems, right? And so this one, clearly, if they want to get treatment, we, we're going to need to do a complete workup, no question about it. Um, you want to pay attention to the age. I mentioned this earlier. So this is a patient who is uh, 16 years old, um, clearly class 3 if you do the assessment. And then you can also look at the, the position, the, uh, the flare of the upper incisors and the, the flare of the lower. It happens to be retroclined. And so, you know, this is more than 7 degrees. This is not upright. So this patient is compensating as they're growing. doesn't mean that you can't treat them, but at 16, I'm going to defer. I'm going to let them know. Unless they're in such a hurry to get treatment, you know, the option is, well, we can treat them now, but we might have to treat them again, and you're going to have to pay again if that's what you want. I'm okay with that, but you just need to know that that's very common for this age group to, for the jaw to keep growing and let them make a decision, right? But there's no harm also in saying, well, you know what, this is a, a potential grower in terms of the, the lower jaw, so let's wait until you're 20, 21, and then start. Um, camouflages, dental camouflages for orthodontics, uh, if they don't want to go to surgery to have the correction done, if, if you're able to determine that the retruded position is edge to edge, you can do a nice job with Invisalign uh, masking the condition. You know, this is a, the, the patient that we saw earlier that she went to the, the, the surgeon and they said you have to do an upper expansion skeletal uh, surgical solution and the lower will have to do a setback and she said, I'm not doing that. Um, we, we assessed her and found that she's really edge to edge uh, in, in dental. Uh, in the retruder position. We used Invisalign on her with some restorative partner with the dentist and treated her in about a year. Okay? So we didn't fix the skeletal problem. She's still maxillary constricted and mandibular prognathic, but got a great result that she was really happy with and everyone was, kind of everyone won in this thing, you know, and it took a little bit, of, about a year. Okay? So it's possible, but you got to make sure that they're not going to grow their way out of it. Okay. The next area, so we co covered the, the bite relationship. The next thing is the overbite. You want to be able to nail that one down during the consultation as well. Um, the common way to do overbite assessment is to figure out what percentage of the incisors is overlapped, and it, it's really hard to do that sometimes because, first, you can't really see behind the teeth, and the second, sometimes those teeth are worn down. So what I like to do instead is instead of looking at the incisal position, this is the classic way of doing it, 
I like, I like to look at the gingival discrepancy. Right? Because the gingiva follows the teeth. So whatever the teeth moved up, the gingiva moved up as well. And use that as a guide to figure out how much you would need to intrude in order to get your treatment goals met. In this case, if I wanted to get the incisal edges all the way even with the cuspids, you know, I'd have to go three millimeters. In some patients, you might have so much wear that you have two treatment plans you're looking at. One is I'm going to intrude so the CEJs are lined up and then I'm going to restore them with your, your veneers or your crown and bridge. The other possibility is uh, level the occlusal plane and leave them short because the patient doesn't want to go through restorations on the lower anteriors. So depending on what your plan is restoratively, you will pick a goal that will be either a little bit or a lot of intrusion. Okay? So use this as a guide. Um, here's an example of, of a very deceptive uh, deep bite. You know, you look at the patient and you go, yeah, that doesn't look that deep if I use the incisal edge, but that's because the patient's worn down a third of the upper incisors. So if I had normal upper incisors, then it would be a very deep bite, right? And so what you, what you want to do is take a look at the gingival position and say, wow, I think in order to get the, the occlusal plane flattened, I would actually have to intrude the lowers maybe four or five millimeters. So that's a lot. But if you have any plans of restoring the uppers, you're going to have to re retract those uppers anyways, and that'll deepen the bite. Okay? And then you're going to go and add uh, porcelain to that, so that'll deepen the bite even more. And so as part of your plan, you should be able to identify up front, I think I need to get those lower incisors out of the way, and it's going to be a lot of intrusion, which means I'm going to need a lot of attachments in order to get that accomplished. Okay? Open bite is going to be... Um, diagnosed in the exam by taking the incisal edge of the lowers and then figuring out where you want to go with it. And that difference is going to be um, how much you have to, to correct. So in this, in this case here, two, three millimeters, so this is on the mild side. Whereas this patient here, the incisal edge is here and the uppers are here, so that gap is what, six, seven, eight millimeters. That's obviously a severe one. You can see the tongue poking through. Now, what I'm not going to cover is, well, you know, when do you decide not to treat it? I'm going to leave that up to the other classes, but I'm also going to let the education group at Invisalign, uh, they, they've got a great case collection on the education tab of your, of your, uh, of your doctor account. Um, they've, they've got a library of hundreds of cases, and we just added another 100 cases just last week uh, from the last year's gallery. Uh, not, not including the 60 more that they got this year. So what I would recommend is if you've got a case, go find something similar, go find out how some other doctor did it, and then see what kind of results you can expect and how complicated it was to achieve it. You know, some of these cases don't require much more than aligners and attachments, and you get beautiful results, but something like this one here was a severe open bite. They ended up using rubber bands with uh, temporary anchorage devices screwed into the palate to intrude the molars. So some of these cases can get very complicated very quickly, but just by looking at what they actually did, you can get a sense for whether you're comfortable doing it or not. Okay? So use that as a resource. It's, it's, it's a great way to look at it. Now, let's talk about aesthetics. You are all experts at being able to uh, discern... Uh, shapes and sizes and proportions of what an ideal tooth looks like. Um, my hope is to then have you consider position of the tooth as well, not just the shape and size, but how is the tooth oriented relative to the other teeth. So Dr. Andrews did a great job characterizing the angle of the tooth from a functional and aesthetic standpoint of the cuspids, central incisors, and laterals. From the front view, if we're looking at the patient straight on, his observation was optimal occlusion had the cuspids tipped inwards on the facial surface. Notice the roots are still flared outwards. Okay, so we're not talking about the root position. We're talking about the facial position of the cuspid. So upper is minus 7 degrees. So seven is, uh, minus is inwards, uh, and the lowers is going to be even more inwards than the upper. So when you look at a patient from the front view like this, what you want to see is the cuspids are pointing inwards. You don't want to see something like this where the cuspids are flared out this way. This is not only unesthetic, but functionally it's not good. Obviously we have ectopic cuspid problems here in this case as well. But you can hopefully appreciate the angle that the facial surface of the cuspid is making is not pointing downwards and inwards. It's pointing outwards. And you don't need to get the exact number. You just need to see, hey, directionally, 
I'm in the wrong direction. My goal is to make enough room mesial distal to this cuspid in order to swing that tip inwards so that it points inwards and towards the middle. So when you look at a patient like this, hopefully what you're cued into is looking at the cuspids align and realizing, hey, these are pointed outwards, outwards. So my treatment goal as part of the treatment is going to be to flare them, tip them inwards. Okay. All right, let's do a quick exercise. Exercise B. Draw the lines on the cuspids, four lines, two on the upper, two on the, two on the upper picture, two on the lower picture. Identify what is wrong with the cuspid position. All right, 30 seconds is up. So you imagine the occlusal plane. You imagine a line that goes to the midpoint of the tooth and a line that goes to the midpoint of the tooth. Remember, the root is actually not out over here. The root is going to be inwards, but this is the facial surface. And you'll notice that the left cuspid is quite nice. It's pointing inwards, but the right one is kind of pointing straight down or out a little bit. So the goal for this treatment would be make enough room mesial distal of this cuspid, swing that tooth inwards to match the position of the left cuspid. In the lowers, what you should have had was something like this. Both cuspids are flared outwards. Okay? If we draw a vertical reference, you can see that ideally this cuspid has more space mesial distal and we could swing it inwards, swing it inwards and have the tip pointing down over here somewhere. All right, let's move along. The incisors also have an angle that is ideal as well. So when you're looking at your patient from the front view, you should be imagining a line that goes from the middle of the uh, crown all the way to the CEJ, the middle of the CEJ, that passes through the midpoint of the tooth. So you're focused here, relative to a horizontal. All right. And the ideal for these is as follows. There's a trend that takes place in optimal aesthetics. And the trend is that the teeth should be pointed towards the midline, this line, okay? And the angle should get bigger as you go farther back. So five degrees forward, nine degrees forward, 11 degrees forward. Notice there's a progression. It gets bigger as you go farther towards the cuspid. And everything points towards the midline. The same thing happens in the lower, but not as severe as in the upper. So in the lower, you have two degrees, essentially upright, two degrees, essentially upright, and then the cuspid is five degrees forward. Okay? So the takeaway from this is, aesthetically and functionally, the teeth should be inclined, or angled, bad term, inclined, angled towards the midline, and progressively more as you go from the central to the lateral to the cuspid. Okay? And you can very easily start to pick up aesthetic problems when you're looking at the teeth from the front view. So here we have a patient, so they don't like their smile, but they can't describe it. Maybe they say they got a gap in between, in between their teeth. What you should be able to see in your mind is these lines being drawn, okay? And you'll observe that three of the teeth are not pointing down towards the middle. They're flared away from the middle. So especially eight and nine. Seven's also problematic. Ten's not bad. It's upright. Um, so if you didn't do anything with ten, maybe you're okay. But... Seven, eight, and nine need to come together towards the midline. Now, why is this important? This is important because in order to get those teeth pointed towards the midline, you need to have two points of force on those teeth, right? And what is going to be required to get those two points of force? Paired attachments. 
So it's not just one attachment. For each tooth, you're going to have to put two attachments on those teeth. So I think it would be a good idea to warn them ahead of time that, hey, you know what? You've got these teeth that we could fix, but you're going to end up having at least six attachments on three of your incisors in the front, which for some patients, that could be a lot to handle if you tell them at the day of the appointment when they get the aligners delivered, versus you've kind of been walking them through the process, showing them it's not so bad, it's very aesthetic, we have a really nice composite, right? So you kind of walk them through building the confidence. But if you drop this on them at the time of the aligner delivery, there could be some problems. So you should recognize up front that something like this would require something that looks like this in order to get uh, those teeth upright. Now the opposite alignment will also require attachments, but it will be flipped around. Here we have a patient that everything's pointed towards the middle, but it's very pointed towards the middle. Um, you should appreciate that instead of having the cuspid tipped in the most, we have the centrals tipped in the most. So we have excessive tip or angulation on the centrals, and we have some angulation problems on the laterals. I think number 10 is actually okay. So here the problem is going to be, again, 7, 8, and 9. Um, cuspid position is okay. Maybe the, the right one's a little bit more severe than the left one. Okay? But again, what I would do in this discussion with the patient is start talking about attachments. You know what? Certainly Invisalign has advanced to a point where we can do uh, angulation problems like the, that you have, but we might need to, well, we're probably going to need to glue some bumps on the teeth, and there will be two of them per tooth. And start that discussion earlier rather than later. All right. Exercise three. How are we doing on time? We're doing okay. Draw the lines from cuspid to cuspid to identify aesthetically what is wrong with these two smiles. Okay, time is up. I'm giving you basically 30 seconds for each of these components. I know it's a little rushed, but the pool awaits. Okay, so in the left side, if you drew your lines, it look, should look something like this. Okay? And in the right one, your lines should look something like this. So the problem with the, the image on the left is everything is flirted out this way. Right? It looks like a flower that kind of exploded. Right? It should be pointing inwards. Whereas on the right side, everything is pointed inwards, which is good, but it's asymmetric. You've got the left one flare, uh, tipped in a little bit more than the right one. Not to mention you've got really small lateral incisors as well, but you've got asymmetries in the position of the cuspids, and then you have one number nine is shorter than number eight, and, and that's a problem as well. So part of this treatment would be upright everything this way and this way, and maybe even restore. The plan for this one would be we got to figure out a way to move everything towards the midline, which may mean a bunch of attachments, may need some power ridges, um, may, may need some IPR in order to make room to get the teeth to come towards the midline. Okay, last component. Question. Yes. Root tip. Now, there's not enough force. Yeah, the reason you need those attachments is there's just not enough force. Yeah, so plan for the worst case scenario, which is they're going to be there the whole time. Okay, crowding. We've got 10 minutes. We're going to wrap this thing up. Um, here's how I look at crowding. You don't have time to get calipers out during your consultation, okay? So what you want to do is be able to eyeball how much crowding you've got very quickly. And the way I look at this is I look at the overlap. How much overlap do they have when they tilt their head downwards between the teeth and add them up? Okay, you should be able to do this very, very quickly. And what you're looking for, I look for the, the number three for crowding. Okay? Anything more than three, 
Yeah, you may be able to undo it without IPR, but in most adults, I'm more comfortable after three millimeters thinking about IPR. So if I count more than three millimeters crowding, I'm going to start the discussion there's a possibility we may have to reshape the teeth. Okay? So in this patient here, we're looking at how much overlap we have. One millimeter, half a millimeter, one and a half, half, nothing, nothing. So you add those things up. One, two, three, three and a half. So you know what? We might need to reshape and make some space in the uppers. In the lower, ooh, three and a half. We're going to probably have to reshape. Let's keep going. Four, zero, five and a half. Okay. Five and a half millimeters. We're at the border of severe. So yeah, we can probably do this, but I'm going to need to think about this a little bit more and figure out where to make the room, get an FMX, look at the enamel thickness, take some models, figure out where the best area is. So as you get higher up in the spectrum, the probability of you needing to kind of think about it more should increase. But you can start to communicate your uncertainty with your patient and your confidence right up front. Uh, we don't have time for this exercise, so I'm going to skip it with you guys, but uh, we'll, we'll do another one uh, in the next slide. So here we have a lower crowding, you know, zero, zero, half millimeter, one, one, half, zero. So this is a mild crowding, two, three millimeters. So if there's a perio problem, maybe we need to do IPR, but ideally we just ha don't have to do any IPR in this particular situation. Okay, spacing is going to be the opposite. The magic number in my mind for spacing is six. What I mean by six is more than six millimeters of spacing, I'm already thinking about not only closing the spaces, but sending them back to you guys to, to add some restorations too, okay? More than six, very hard in my mind to confidently be able to close everything up. I'm thinking possibly we may have to combine it with, you know, bonding or veneers. Doesn't mean that we will have to do it, but I'm going to start the discussion as the possibility of uh, introducing that. So here we, we're going to have the opposite effect, uh, if you will, and we add the numbers up, but they're minus. And if it's more than six, I'm thinking about talking about restorative solutions in addition to the orthodontics. So you just add them up and come up with a number, and you're good to go. So here's a case. You've got this as exercise number, or letter E. Put some numbers up there. I gave you a clue. This one's one. So based on that being one, see if you can come up with a number and start thinking about what would you say to the patient? Okay, here's the numbers that I came up with for the upper, and here's the numbers I came up with in the lower. This space has a lot of space, so hopefully you recognize right off the bat that there's more than six millimeters in this. Okay, so this is a pretty complicated case without restoration. So this is probably one that I would start the dialogue right away. You know what? You've got a lot of space. I think the best we can do is close up some of the spaces so that when I send you back to the dentist, they'll be able to do a great job making sure your teeth aren't too big when they put the restorations in. Um, without the orthodontic part, you're going to have really big teeth after the restorations, and that's just not very good looking. Okay? And then if we do the records and we get it back and then we can come up with a compromise that's reasonable, yeah, we back out of that a little bit. But we've set a reasonable expectation up front as to what the experience would be like for the patient. Okay, so there you have it. Your four components that we talked about, um, we have a little bit of time, so I'm going to do two exercises with you, and I'm going to walk you through the process. This is a 40-year-old male patient. I want you to think through, based on what you learned today, what do they have? What is their cuspid relationship? Aesthetically, how are the incisors looking? Are they too flared? Are they too retroclined? How, is, the deep, is it a deep bite? Is it an open bite? Is there a skeletal problem hiding in there? The first thing I notice is there's a diastema. Teeth are funny shaped. Chief complaint of the patient is actually the diastema. 
So I look at the right, teeth are sitting one on top of the other. I do a look back, teeth are still sitting on top of the other. So right side, class two. Okay, I go to the left side, teeth sitting on one on top of the other. I do a look back, teeth still sitting on top of the other, class two. Well, class two, class two. Let's figure out if there's a skeletal problem. So turn your head to the side a little bit. Can you slide your teeth forward until they touch? He, slide, he slides forward. You can see that his chin is set back a little bit. He slides all the way forward, and his, teeth, his chin comes really far forward, right? So I certainly don't want him to be corrected to that position, but that's because his teeth are so flared forward. If we were able to get the teeth upright and he had surgery, then he'd probably look better. So I'm thinking there probably is a skeletal component related to this, um, but we don't want to get him this far forward, okay? Um, do we have a deep bite or an open bite? Well, we have a deep bite for sure. In fact, you can see there's a big step here. He's about three millimeters away from ideal, which is probably contributing to the flared upper incisors. Okay? And then if we look at the crowding, we've got one millimeter there, we've got one millimeter there, we've got one millimeter there. Three millimeters of crowding, but we have a diastem of a millimeter and a half. So in terms of crowding, he's got maybe two millimeters of crowding, one and a half millimeters of crowding net in the uppers. So that's good because I need it to be able to pull those teeth back as much as possible. So I'm thinking if I want to retract the uppers to more ideal uh, flare, if you will, um, I'm going to have to think about doing some IPR probably. And then in the lowers, I got mild crowding, maybe like a millimeter and a half in the, in the, in the lower. Uh, is there a question? Yeah, cer certainly you could think about expanding as, as well. But we have a class two. So remember, in order to retract to reduce that overjet, we're still going to have to pull something back farther. Okay, and so I, I'm leaning towards IPR if he chooses not to do surgery because otherwise I'm going to end up with still a lot of overjet. Now, the other thing to think about is we've got a big step. So from a restorative standpoint, you have to figure out, do you want to intrude those incisors all the way or do you want to build up the posteriors with restorations? And this could be easily a you know, reconstruction of the entire posterior segment. But my guess is the step is big enough where you're probably going to intrude the lowers a little bit more. Let's do one more. Um, a you could do a little bit, yep. You could do a little bit because he's end on. Yeah. And then you have to back it up with some rubber bands. Here's a patient, 20 years old, and this is our last case, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, she comes to you with an underbite. She complained is underbite, doesn't look good. Okay. Here's her profile. And here is her in the retruded position. You know, when I push the chin back a little bit, you can kind of see where she's at. Okay. So what is your cuspid relationship? What is your overbite? How much crowding spacing do you have? And what are you starting to think about in terms of discussion? So in my mind, 20 years old, past the growth spurt. So I'm not worried about the growth. My job is then to figure out, is this a dental problem or a skeletal problem, right? She doesn't exhibit your classic skeletal problem, so I'm thinking, well, let's take a look in her retreated position and see where she's at. She's actually looking pretty good here, right? This is kind of a class one looking bite here. And in the retreated position, edge to edge here, she's still, you gotta use your imagination a little bit, but you know, it, it's kind of a class one position. So I'm feeling pretty good that this is probably just a, it erupted on the wrong side and there's a kind of dental problem you know, hi hiding in there. Uh, we've got spaces in the lower. So how much spaces do we have? You know, one, two, three, four, five, five millimeters space in the lower. It's not severe, but that's good. I want a lot of space in the lower to retract the lowers to fix the crossbite. Okay? The problem is going to be what? In the upper arch, you've got small lateral incisors. Okay? So my approach for this patient is, you know what? Yes, it looks kind of bad. Um, but I'm thinking that we may be able to treat this with a combination of Invisalign plus making space in the uppers for veneers on the lateral incisors because I need to get as much overjet as possible. So we may need to build an extra space in the upper, build it around the lateral incisors, and then restore that. So this would be retract the lowers with Invisalign, jump the crossbite, ensure I jump the crossbite by flaring the uppers a little bit farther forward, building space around the laterals, and restore it, and we'll call it a day. Everyone get it? Okay, so the whole point of this class was really within two minutes you want to be able to identify the cuspid relationship, overbite, crowding, aesthetic components in your exam so you get a good sense of where you can go with this and build up your confidence. In your handouts I've kind of outlined there's more stuff there. Again, hopefully we'll be able to do an advanced course later on sometime. But you'll get a lot just by doing these four components. And what you want to do is 
If it takes more than two minutes, simply let them know, I think this is a little bit more hiding in there than I'm comfortable with. Let's go ahead and do additional records. So there's no harm in doing more records, but you certainly don't want to do more records on every single patient, especially if they haven't committed to anything. Okay? And then at that point, you could decide, based on your gut feel as to how comfortable you are and if you need more records, whether or not that case is something that you want to treat or not. So at the end of the day, what you should be able to have is a, is a solid assessment, and then you define the comfort zone that you're in, and then you can decide whether or not you want to do a good job with that. Okay, so with that, thank you very much for coming. Enjoy the rest of the day. If there's any questions... Uh